Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. I want to share with you an exciting new report we are publishing entitled Russia's Climate Gamble, the Pursuit and Contradiction of its Arctic Ambitions. For the past two years, CSIS has been examining Russia's political economy through the lens of climate change. As our listeners may recall, our Russia in a Time of Climate Change series featured the voices of our three Russian visiting fellows who helped us understand the impact of climate change on Russian energy transitions, civil society activism, and political interaction between Moscow and regional governments. Why this research is particularly important is that the Russian government has positioned itself as a beneficiary of climate change and has welcomed a rapidly transforming Arctic that is warming three times faster than the rest of the world and of course becoming increasingly accessible. So our new report explores more deeply the implications of climate impacts in the Russian Arctic on its economy, internal political dynamics, and of course, its military posture. We examine the costs of infrastructure degradation caused by permafrost thaw, wildfires, and coastal erosion, just to name a few. The most pervasive threat to Russia from climate change is clearly permafrost thaw. Roughly 60% of Russia's territory, encompassing urban centers, energy infrastructure, and military installations, are covered by permafrost. And Russia possesses a particularly ice-rich layer of permafrost. And what that means is it's even more vulnerable to rapid thawing. And interestingly, where some of its most vulnerable permafrost hotspots lie is on the Yamal Peninsula, where some of its most important oil and gas projects are located. And of course, these are absolutely essential to Russia's future economic ambitions. So you you understand the contradiction. On the one hand, there's a benefit uh, for the Russian government to explore and exploit the benefits of climate change, but exactly where those benefits are located is where it is most vulnerable from a climate perspective. It was very interesting that in mid-August of this year, President Vladimir Putin described the largest wildfire in Russia's history as absolutely unprecedented because it had burned at that time nearly 9.4 million hectares of land in the Siberian region of Yakutia and had catastrophically released over 500 megatons of carbon dioxide equivalent into the atmosphere, setting an annual record for Russian carbon emissions. This is an absolutely unprecedented time. Coastal erosion, self-accelerated by permafrost thaw, has caused Russia to lose the land equivalent of Paris every two years. And it certainly is threatening the construction of ports and infrastructure along the Northern Sea Route, the important new shipping route through the Russian Arctic. Climate change is also altering the characteristics of Arctic waters, we're a process known as Atlantification. And this really creates complications for marine wildlife and Russian fishing stocks. It's, it's no wonder that Russia has recently opened, opened new fishing areas uh, in the Chucky and the Bering Sea. So all of these issues, in addition 
to a, a quite unexplained phenomena that we're seeing again on the Yamal Peninsula with a number of these gas or methane blowout craters near major oil and gas facilities. Scientists aren't even sure what is causing that. It could be permafrost thaw. It could just be the exacerbation of these important shifts uh, in, the, in the structure of the soil. Now, this has a lot of costs. And the Russian government has estimated that infrastructure damage related to permafrost degradation and its sub subsequent damage will cost uh, $67 billion by 2050. Now, private researchers put that figure much closer to $105 billion. And of course, this great damage and burden falls disproportionately on Russia's less developed Arctic regions. Interestingly, a number of Russian Arctic military installations may be particularly vulnerable to the physical impacts of climate change. Our report notes that probably about 18 uh, of Russia's Arctic military installations are endangered by permafrost, and we're particularly concerned about five that are located in what we call so-called permafrost hotspots. Some of these are in near important uh, shipbuilding yards. Uh, some of these bases have been particularly vulnerable to the wildfires I described. So again, we see the danger of climate, and that combines with a, a culture, quite frankly, of engineering shortcuts and perhaps uh, not using uh, the best materials. And of course, we know Russia uses heavy, heavy concrete, uh, and that heavy, heavy concrete is sinking quite dramatically as the permafrost begins to thaw. But as the Kremlin struggles with the costs of climate change, it is doubling down on promoting the benefits of climate transformation in the Arctic with its two key economic projects, the Yamal LNG project and the Northern Sea Route. I think it's important to note that there was great skepticism about the success of the Yamal LNG project when it was introduced but today we see a phenomenally strong LNG project and a boon for Russia. And now we turn to the Northern Sea Route. Again, perhaps approaching this with increased skepticism of whether it will be someday transformed into the next Suez Canal as far as a transportation route. It's important to note that the Northern Sea Route is becoming increasingly ice-free, but it's not completely ice-free. And just as Russia is seeking to expand the Northern Sea Route, it also must increase securitization around the Arctic to protect it from uh, this initial growth of, of economic opportunity. So as we discuss the climate costs for Russia, in this episode of Russian Roulette, we are more closely examining the benefits of that increasingly ice-free Northern Sea Route. I am delighted to sit down with my colleague, Felix Schutte, the chairman and owner of the Schutte Group a global shipping and logistics company headquartered in Norway that has had a long-term special focus on Arctic logistics. Felix uh, discusses Russia's ambitious plans for transforming the Northern Sea Route into that major shipping corridor. We talk also about the climate impacts, other competing routes like the transpolar route, and enviro environmental activism uh, and the prospects for the Northern Sea Route. This is a great conversation. I hope you'll read our report, but now let's get started. Well, 
I am so pleased, Felix, to to have you with us. And there has been so much conversation about the Northern Sea Route. In fact, the one who's speaking most about it, I would argue, is Russian President Vladimir Putin in the last several weeks. So we're so grateful that, that you could be our very special guest on Russian Roulette. And I first want to ask you, just for our, our listeners, tell us a little bit about the Shooty Group. Uh, obviously, you you are a global shipping and logistics firm. You're based in Norway, but you have a very strong Arctic presence. So just could you help our listeners understand what exactly the Shooty Group does in the Arctic? And then we're going to roll up our sleeves and start talking about the implications for the Northern Sea Route and what we're what we'll see in coming years. Thank you, Heather. The Shooty Group is traditionally a shipping company from Norway, but uh, since the early 90s we had a special interest for the uh, for the northern part of Norway and that was because of the proximity to, to Russia. Russia has by ge- geography has limitations with regard to access to the sea and we always thought that Norway could play a role in, in serving some of the needs of, of Russia and being a shipping company with that interest it was natural to focus up in the north and we have had a f- foothold in Kirkenes on the Russian border since early 90s in fact. So I think when we talk about the Northern Sea Route, um, this is, so, you know, and when Russia, certainly, it is a critical element of its economic ambitions in the Arctic. We often think about energy and mineral resources, but the shipping lane has gotten a lot of attention. And in fact, the Russian government often speaks about the Northern Sea Route is the real benefit of climate change. And the Russian government has put forward a very bold ambition that the Northern Sea Route will have 80 million tons of shippage through the Northern Sea Route by 2024. And you've watched and are part of the logistics network. Is that an achievable goal, Felix, uh, by 2024 and what you're seeing in, in, in the construction uh, uh, along the route of when we'll talk about some of the transportation hubs and the shipping hubs that we're seeing, is that a realistic uh, goal for Russia? Well, the fact is that uh, uh, the, the transport volumes have risen enormously and grown enormously over the past few years, in fact, from almost few five, six million tons to 30 million tons and uh, over a few years. And so the trend is definitely there, whether you hit 80 million on, in 2024 or in 2026, or, uh, you know, that is a, a different issue. And then, of course, depends on when those different projects which are being developed will be finalized. But it's for sure that there are some major projects which are being developed and which will need huge amounts of transportation. So I can't tell you exactly 80 million in 2024, but I can tell you that it will be 80 million within a few years of that. You're seeing the trajectory is definitely, it may not hit the 80 million mark by 2024, but you're definitely seeing that this, this route is going to be increasingly used. That That's without a question mark in your mind. Yes, that is without a question mark in my mind, because Northern Sea Route is, you know, when you talk about it, it is, for some, it's seen as the, the route between the, the Atlantic and the Pacific. Uh, the specific definition is not very important. It's really the route between the Atlantic and the, the Pacific. So that's for transit. That's one issue that is maybe not growing as fast as, uh, as the other ones. It, it will also grow. And that is very often focused upon because people are thinking about the national route. Uh, the other one is the one which is really growing very, very fast. And that is the destinational shipping, which is in and out of 
the, the Russian Siberia uh, or, or Russian Arctic, and which is using parts of the Northern Sea Route, either going east or going west, either by shipping in equipment for these huge developments or uh, shipping the, the products out. So, and that part of it is, is the one which is really growing very, very fast. So the growth in that trade uh, transportation will is, is a function of the, the projects which are, are being developed. So uh, Felix, you just made a very important distinction that I think so many lose. There's a difference between destinational shipping, that those ships going up to port to get energy or mineral resources and going back to their market, and then that transshipment using the entire length. Does the 80 million ton goal for 2024, is that all shipping? So they combine both the destinational traffic, which as you rightly said, is definitely increasing. The transshipment is not great. I think last year it was 1.3 million tons. So that's still that through entirely. Do you know if that figure is combined or separate? No, no, that's that's, uh, combined. Combined. That's the the total figure. Yeah. And of course, it's the destinational Russian volumes, which are really, really developing fast. Yeah, yeah. So that is definitely the, the the development. And just earlier this year, I, I think the Russian government, uh, in its new development strategy, put forward an even bolder ambition: uh, 150 million tons by 2030. Again, I'll ask the same question for you: as you look at this from a logistics standpoint, is that goal achievable? Because that's even more ambitious. Uh, I think. Very, very difficult to put the sort of exact figures on it. It just shows that there are some very ambitious projects out there and, and there are real projects in the making. I mean, we all know about the Yamal LNG, which is now up to more than 19 million tons a year of production. The Arctic LNG 2 is in it or is being built as we speak. It's being built in, in Murmansk and will actually be floated into position in the Ob River Delta on the Gdan Peninsula. That is another 19, 20 million tons. And then there are several more LNG projects in, in, in the pipeline. They're not yet being built, uh, as far as I know. There are also projects to, to open um, anthracite mines. There are oil fields. And of course, you have a huge uh, Rosneft project on the Tamir Peninsula. And all of these, if they materialize, uh, the, the volumes will be huge, very, very large. And then, of course, these figures might be uh, achievable. So uh, the further out in time you go, the more uncertain things get, of course. Absolutely. And, and there are so many things I want to unpack in what you just said. Let, let's concentrate on uh, the Yamal LNG projects, because what we are seeing, certainly over the last several years, more destinational traffic, which was building the port de Sabeta and the LNG carriers that uh, transport the LNG either to European markets or to Asian markets. That's really the crown jewel. But we argue the crown jewel right now for Russia's uh, economic ambitions in the Arctic. How large do you think that that LNG carrier traffic is? Uh, and, and just, again, concentrating on Yamal, how, how much of is that just really part of realizing the tonnage and realizing the potential uh, use of the northern sea route? The traffic, I mean, as I said, it's a production of about more than 19 million tons a year, and that's all being shipped out. It all has to be shipped out because there's no other way to actually get it to the markets. Most of it is going to the west presently, but a larger proportion is now going to the to the east as well. And uh, for example, I, I have a figure here. I mean, the first six months of 2021, there were 265 voyages, which were LNG tankers. That is uh, it's a very high number of, of, of shipments. So the traffic is quite quite extensive and, of course, growing as we speak. 
it's really important to note that, you know, when, when the Yamal project was announced in 2012, people were just thinking that this would not come to fruition or a lot of energy experts were quite suspect about it. And, and honestly, it has uh, really been transformative uh, for, for the Russian Arctic. But the, the project that uh, you mentioned that I, I want to pull out a little bit more is exactly the uh, Rosneft's Vostok oil project. This is a massive uh, project. And you mentioned, you know, creating the largest oil terminal in Sever Bay and Tamir Peninsula. I, I have to say this one, I'm a little more suspect. And as I said, I, I'm cautious that we didn't think the Yamal pro- LNG project would get off uh, the ground. So we should be equally humble about this. But it seems to me in a world that is now shifting away from fossil fuel use, and there's more activism about not exploiting Arctic energy, that this project may be more challenged. Um, Give us your thoughts from a logistics and shipping perspective about the the Vostok oil project and and what its potential to transform the Northern Sea Route. I must admit, this is a project which is further out in time. So, of course, we are not into the details of this. And it's a, it's a very ambitious project. I think from a shipping point of view, you could say physically or not, it's more, not more difficult than the, the Yamal LNG. Also, a better project. I mean, it's a, mm. it's a terminal. You build it. It's shipping in and out. Of course, uh, as we see and read, Russia is really building and renewing its uh, nuclear ice-breaking fleet. And that's, of course, with the, you know, it's huge investments. And that is, again, with the target or with the goal of being uh, being able to support the increased traffic. And part of that increased traffic might be the, the Vostok oil project terminals. Of course, we all know and understand that over time, there will be less requirement for oil. But, of course, this can take a long time and, and we all know that uh, the hydrocarbons are still very predominant and in, at, the, at the time being even increasing. So a jury is still out on that one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where we try to understand the ambitions and the direction of travel and then and then its impact. The last shipping issue that I, I think we're, we're trying to get our arms around and that the Russian government has re- recently announced is a focus on container shipment through the Northern Sea Route and the possibility of um, DP World uh, creating a container shipping hub. I, I, I would really welcome your insights here because I guess I my, my own understanding of the Northern Sea Route is that it's not great for container shipping, just from, from a port perspective, shallow waters, the need for the significant amounts of infrastructure that it just really wasn't attuned for container shipment. But are things shifting in that regard? Or is this, again, still, uh, you know, ambitious, it's futuristic, we're exploring it. But how significant uh, for container shipping do you think the Northern Sea Route will become? I must admit, I have uh, traditionally been uh, following your line of thought, uh, because, of course, the competition here is a huge 20,000 TU, you know, plus minus 20,000 TU ships going from the east to the west and, and going through the Suez Canal and serving uh, the, the big trade routes and, and calling on a limited number of ports. But of course, we have seen in the COVID period now how container rates are certainly exploding. They're even, you know, 10 times what they were and so on. So that things are changing. Then the, what has really changed on with regard to this project uh, which is run by uh, Rosatom Cargo, which is a subsidiary of the Rosatom Group, and where DP World, as you mentioned, has joined in, is that they are aiming to set up two dedicated terminals 
on each side of the Arctic in the Kamchatka Island or, or Vladivostok, most likely, and in Murmansk, and where you would have dedicated ice-breaking container vessels, which will actually serve year-round. And, um, and with the support of the additional icebreakers, which are now being built, this is probably feasible. Question is whether it is uh, economically feasible. Question, of course, what kind of speed can you keep and so on. The uh, ambition is then to use those two hubs and collect cargoes coming from uh, the regions around it. It could be from Europe and it can be from uh, the Far East, I mean, China, Korea, Japan, and so on. And then transship those containers to the West or to the East. And then the containers will be picked up in Murmansk, for example, by small feeder vessels, which will bring them to the, to the market. So it, there will be an additional transshipment, which is, of course, increasing the cost. But on the other hand, we have seen that with the, with the recent events in, in the Suez Canal, when it was ever closed by the Ever Given, and that the world probably might need an additional route. So that is, uh, of course, uh, uh, giving some credibility or some uh, support to such a project. And of course, it's very much about the willingness of Russia to actually support this. You know, because nothing aligns when you start with the container lines. It takes a long time before they make money. Anyway, the ambition is there and they're really working very, very hard toward it. Well, Felix, thank you. I mean, I think that's really fascinating. I think you're right that, you know, the prices, when we see an increase in prices, either shipping prices, global commodity prices, that always makes the Northern Sea Route more attractive. It, it, yeah. drives, it drives great interest. I was going to ask you, uh, you almost beat me to the question, about this, the, Man, the Mormonsk transport hub. Uh, and, and, and again, exactly, how does that impact Norway? I mean, what press reports suggest is that right now that transport hub is mostly, again, for coal, fertilizer, those types of, of things. Obviously, coal, again, controversial in the, you know, in the forthcoming COP26 summit, trying to eliminate the use of, of, of coal uh, for our climate agenda. But how do you see that Mormonsk transport hub evolving uh, over time? Time and exactly said, and its implications for Kirkenes or 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 elsewhere. Um, is it again going to stick mostly? Sort of gets to my: Are we still on energy uh, and mineral resources? Are we moving more towards to the container shipment, or is it designed to do both? Uh, it is. It will be designed to do both. Of course, Murmansk does a lot of uh, commodities today. That it is really what it does the most, and the project is ongoing on the on the, the western side of the Kola Fjord being constructed. I think the, the goal, I mean, Russia will for a long time, uh, you know, be mainly a, or a commodity or exporter. And, and of course, the Arctic being as rich as it is, where you need those specialized expensive ships, which might be built as icebreakers, which are, are shallow drafts, and for that reason, uh, quite expensive. They should be used on the shortest possible run where you need those features. That's why to actually establish uh, transshipment hubs where you, they discharge in order to serve or to load onto conventional ships is makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is also what we, one of the reasons why we in the shipping started to work in Kirkenes and in Honningsvog and inside the, the North Cape was to serve Russian oil and later on LNG as a transshipment hub for those vessels. 
I believe that those the, the Murmansk transport hub makes uh, makes sense. Let's see what what happens. It's of course very much a matter of who is willing to make those investments and then be very patient to see it uh, come to fruition. Felix, before I turn to the sort of the climate implications of the the ability to use the Northern Sea Route. My last question, there is another emergent route, certainly the Chinese have been most interested in this route, it's the transpolar route, which does not use the Northern Sea Route, goes beyond the Russian exclusive economic zone. Again, from, from your vantage point as a global shipping and logistics firm, do you see that route uh, eventually sort of overwhelming the Northern Sea Route? If you can do direct, uh, you don't have to use Russian icebreakers, you don't have to use the, the fees or their services and just going directly over? Or do you think that's, you know, maybe use some, but the Northern Sea Route is always going to be of greater use and value. This is, of course, very much a function of, of climate change. What happens? Is there going to be less, so much less ice that the, the, the transpolar route is, is really, really feasible? At this time, of course, it's not yet economic because ice actually slows you down so much that you, you will not be able to use it very efficiently. And, and you will definitely be def- dependent on, on icebreaker su- support. And the most powerful icebreakers around are definitely the Russian ones in the Rosatom flot, you know, the nuclear ones. So there are many things which have to happen before that route can, can compare to the Northern Sea route, which after all has infrastructure. I mean, icebreakers, nuclear icebreakers are infrastructure. But of course, things have changed so much over the past, in fact, only 10, 15 years. Uh, I mean, in 2010, when we were instrumental in shipping iron ore from Tekkenes to China from an an iron ore mine, which we were uh, instrumental in reopening. From that time, there were, at that time, there were four ships going uh, in transit. There were, and the year before, one or two, nothing. And then suddenly now there are uh, 70, and, and then you have, of course, the volumes increase. So there, in, there's been absolutely explosive uh, development over the past yeah, 10 years, actually. So you should never say no, never, also to the <laughs> transpolar route. Well, I think that's a really important reminder, the speed of change, obviously, the the warming of the Arctic and the speed of physical transformation of the Arctic, right along with this this really rapid transformation of of the region uh, economically. So what I'd love to do is sort of swing us to the climate impact, asking very specifically from your point, have you seen the climate impacts as you're doing your work? the coastal erosion that has impacted either Norwegian or Russian infrastructure as they're building, whether it's, you know, the port of Sabeta, are you seeing the implications of permafrost thaw, which can be exacerbated, obviously, in the coastal, uh, some of the coastal regions? How is climate transforming your work, your business, and then sort of a broader reflection along the Northern Sea Route? I would say that, uh, of course, one aspect of climate change is what we have talked about so far. And that is basically that, uh, I mean, the the Northern Sea Route was always open for a period, but that period was much smaller or much shorter than it is today. And of course, the longer that period is open, ice-free ocean, then the the more potential there is for for transport. So that's, of course, the the main aspect of it, which is, yeah, it's unfortunate, but it's it's reality, and of course it means that a shorter route between the two big uh, largest oceans on the Earth can be used. 
which again reduces, after all, reduces emissions and, and so on and so on, I mean, by, by significant numbers. When it comes to the on-land uh, impact, you know, I, we don't see that much of that. Of course, we, we realize that when you travel there, you can see some of the houses are, of course, being impacted by, by the permafrost going so that they start cracking up and so on. That's an unfortunate factor of the warming. Erosion is the case in the Arctic as elsewhere. But I can't really tell you that I have very, very good examples of, of, of this. Of course, it's also to do with the, the, the pipelines and so on, which, of course, get affected by permafrost uh, melting because it's the foundations are based on that. So it, there are many, many unfortunate aspects of, of, of climate change. And, and, of course, we all know that the Arctic is one area where it has a bigger impact than most other places. Felix, how is it impacting your industry. So there have been a lot of focus at the International Maritime Organization, environmental organizations to ban the use of heavy fuel oils in the Arctic with shipping. So just the the type of of, of fuel the uh, ships are using absolutely reduces emissions because it's a shorter distance, but it also brings heavy fuel oils to the region. There's been efforts underway to limit marine pollution coming from vessels. Help us understand how how the climate and environmental sensitivities of the region impact the shipping industry in the in the Arctic. I think uh, to start with the heavy fuel oil ban, which is uh, has been proposed. Personally, of course, I don't think and I th- that the shipping in the Arctic itself is not the cause of the warming of the Ar- Arctic, because most of the you know you had the black carbon effect, black spots on on ice or wh- white surfaces effect, which in fact most shipping happens when there is no ice. And when there is open sea, I mean, there is uh, months of virtually open water, which means that those that effect is not very significant. Of course, the numbers of ships we're talking about is still very, very limited. So this is not a major impact on, on any warming of the Arctic. Then you could say it's an issue of pollution. Then, it's, then there is a question of which oils are worst. Is it, uh, is it heavy fuel oil, which lumps and, and might even sink and can be picked up? Or is it diesel or others which are spreading out and, and contaminates much larger areas and so on? So this is a big debate. Uh, I will not go into it. I mean, it seems uh, the world is anyway moving towards other, other types of fuel for ships over time. That's The jury is still out which ones are, are, are going to win. Personally, I think for the Arctic, uh, and I just gave a presentation about that not so long ago, LNG is the natural fuel uh, because it's available on, on both sides. It's, there's, no, there's no NOx, there's no SOx, SOx, no NOx, there's no black carbon, there's no pollution. If, if you have an accident, you, you have no oil spill. Of course, there's still um, CO2 emission and LNG or natural gas is seen as an intermediate fuel until better solutions are found in the future sometime. But one can also imagine actually, and that is what I presented, that you can have onboard uh, carbon capture units, which means that you can actually sail totally emission-free with LNG. Then, of course, it requires reception facilities on each side of the loading or discharging ports, which can then dispose of the CO2 in a, either as a fuel or as, as an input for some other processes or to deposit it, then you could create a totally the shortest and a totally emission-free connection between the Atlantic and the Pacific. So there are many possibilities, and the jury is definitely still out on what is uh, the right solution. When it comes to discharge of water, of course, there should be no discharge to 
the water of, of any any sort of contaminated water and so on, which the rules are already requesting or requiring. And there's a lot of hype. We know that's the point out of never transporting anything through the Arctic and so on. I think that is a little bit more of a political statement than anything else, not very much based on the uh, or the reality behind. There's a lot of greenwashing happening in the in the white Arctic. I think there's a lot of greenwashing going on in, in, in the Russian government, uh, trying to present a very environmentally uh, friendly picture. And, you know, it's, you have to get into those details. And thank you so much. That was a, a great explanation. I, I have two, um, two final questions. And, and one is about sort of insurance, the insurance industry, uh, and how they're pricing in the technological transformations, the viability of of the Northern Sea Route. Uh, And then, you know, sort of touching on exactly what you said, sort of uh, shareholder activism, environmental activism that is impacting uh, economic investment in the Arctic. Any sort of reflections on both aspects of of that part of the challenge of, of increasing usage of the Northern Sea Route? I think insurance is, of course, very, very important because without insurance, you, you can't operate. And uh, there are now some insurance companies which have gained quite a lot of experience and which have, you know, making their estimates or making their premium requirements based on facts and based on uh, on some historical data, even though there is, of course, not that much uh, data available. Uh, it is fully feasible to get insurance, but it, it has a cost, of course. Those costs, additional costs, will always be matched uh, by the, the value of the savings you're making, by the value of the, because you are shaving off maybe 30, 40% of the voyage. It's a function of the, how much bunkers do you, or fuel do you actually save? How many, how much charter hire do you save? Uh, and then you have to match that with the cost of, the additional cost of insurance, the additional cost of, of if you, if it's required, if you need it. Uh, the uh, icebreaker assistance and so on. So there's a trade-off and it's a, it's a calculation to see what makes sense and time-wise is important, of course. What you see also is, is quite often you start to see empty vessels starting to use the Northern Sea Route for positioning. Uh, you know, you have a collected days now, one large heavy lift vessel, submersible heavy lift vessel, which has brought in large modules for the, for the uh, Arctic LNG2 project. And then it will return through the empty through the northern sea route to be you know to be fast uh, back in position to carry all the cargo for example okay. so there are many many aspects of it so felix i have one last question this has been a fascinating conversation there have been some efforts by uh, russian regional leaders encouraging the Kremlin to broaden the legal definition of the Northern Sea Route, we make it a little broader towards both the West and the East. I always felt that that was in part uh, an effort to try to reach those tonnage goals that President Putin has established. I would welcome your thoughts uh, on, you know, legally expanding the definition of the Northern Sea Route. Would that cause concern among investors and companies like yourself that, this is now coming to question what the legal definition is, or in fact, is it recognition that the Russian government is trying to reach its ambitious goals uh, for, for tonnage through the Northern Sea Route? I haven't really seen it as a, as a way of reaching those goals, but uh, I can't judge that at all. But I'm, I'm just seeing that from a simple point of view or from a practical point of view, of course, for us, the Northern Sea Route is really the distance from Murmansk to uh, or from the Norwegian coast to the Bering Strait. 
because that is that's what we're talking. I mean, it's you can call it the Northeast Passage or whatever, but that's the Northern Sea route from a practical point of view. So from my point of view, it makes a, a lot of sense to extend that that definition because that's what I mean. Who cares about the, the northern tip of Cape Celania or the northern tip of Norway Semlia to uh, you know th- th- there's very few who relate to that. You relate to that route because that's where you use it. So I think that is what is going to stand when you know 2024 is over and, and so on and so on. It is that you know that piece of geography is really the northern sea route. It is so fascinating. You know, for me, understanding the Northern Sea Route, understanding the ambitions, the reality of the situation, and, and exactly as we've done sort of pull, you know, what's going on commercially, economically is really important for us to assess the Northern Sea Route and its implications uh, for global shipping, but also for Russia's very ambitious uh, Arctic goals. But I, I would just like to add there, because it's very important, I think, not to see the Northern Sea Route or the Arctic as exclusively Russian affair. Because then, of course, it has implications how, on how things are seen and the interest of the business communities and for that sake of the nations and so on. Of course, for Alaska, for Dutch Harbor, of course, the, the potential of moving some of their products through the Northern Sea Route. To Europe or to, uh, for that sake, almost to the, the East Coast, could have potentially a huge value. And this is a little bit, it's undercommunicated because it's it's seen that the Northern Sea Route is an exclusively Russian thing, or for that sake now, uh, of course, China has involved itself, but, you know, Japan and Korea is very engaged as well. And I think in many ways, the US should have a look at that potential of, of, of using the Northern Sea Route as well for exports, of course, in particular from Alaska, but also from parts of the West Coast, for that sake. It's, it's a trade route which is opening up, and uh, a trade route is, uh, by definition, between <laughs> two side, two places. And, and, uh, and, of course, this is an international trade route, and it's proven that it is open for all international users. You're exactly right. Uh, thinking about the circumpolar Arctic and not just the Arctic for the coastal states and the regional actors, but uh, the global shipping implications. So, Felix, thank you so much for, for your insights. I, I, I think we're all now smarter on well, how the so. northern re- sea route will, will work, some of the challenges that, that lie ahead. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Heather. Thank you. That's it for our show today. We'll provide the link to the report in the show notes. Please also check links to Felix's bio and to track developments along the Northern Sea Route, check out the Center for High North Logistics. And another great resource is the Marine Exchange of Alaska, which tracks shipping traffic through the narrow Bering Sea and around Alaska. For those of you who aren't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or leaving us a rating and a review. If you're not an Apple podcast user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to great content. And again, keep spreading the word. And just one final note. For this particular episode, I would like to thank our funder, the Russia Strategic Initiative, the U.S. European Command in Stuttgart, Germany. It's very important to note that the opinions and arguments and viewpoints and conclusions expressed Uh, In this work, do not represent those of the Russia Strategic Initiative, U.S. European Command, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. 
Okay. Thanks to everyone who worked so hard to make this podcast happen, including our fabulous producer, program manager, and all-around great human being, Roxana Gabadulina, and the entire CSIS External Relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>